Welcome to the AO Spine Research Top 10 podcast with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. In this episode, we're going to be hearing about the number three priority diagnostic criteria for DCM. We're going to be hearing from spine surgeons, Dr. James Harrop and Dr. Brian Kwan, and Ewan Sadler, a person living with cervical myelopathy. My name is Dr. Benjamin Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist and founder of myelopathy.org. And I'm Dr. Michelle Starkey, scientist and director of myelopathy.org. This is the AO Spine Top 10 podcast with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. Welcome to the third of 10 episodes covering the AO Spine Top 10 Research Priorities. Perhaps you could give us a bit of background, Ben, for those who are listening to this podcast for the first time. Right. So this is part of the AO Spine Recode DCM project, or as the acronym breaks down to research objectives and common data elements for DCM. And what this project was trying to do was provide a set of recommendations and guidance that could help researchers really accelerate knowledge discovery that can change outcomes. And part of that process included setting the top research priorities. The aim of research prioritization is to really consolidate efforts, research investment and resources onto key areas that will give those questions a better chance of being answered sooner. Uh, And really this podcast episode process is really about trying to showcase why those questions are so important, what they are, and, and perhaps how they can be answered. And what's today's episode focusing on, Michelle? So today we're going to be focusing on the third priority, which is forming diagnostic criteria for DCM, or as the full research question states, what are the diagnostic criteria for DCM? What is the role of imaging? And when should imaging be used in the assessment of DCM? So the first guest on the podcast today is Ewan Sadler. Ewan is someone that's living with myelopathy, and importantly, he's one of the founders of myelopathy.org. Ewan runs the myelopathy support pages on Facebook. I asked Ewan about his experience of being diagnosed with DCM. I started having my symptoms back in 2000. It was coming over as probably a muscular problem, and... In the back of my head, I always thought it was a muscular issue that I had because back then I was training probably six days a week. So I was back and forth to the doctors and the doctor thought it was an issue with my trapezium muscle. Um, They would lock it up um, and they had muscle knots in them that were causing the issues and the pain. Also, it sort of limited my sort of mobility from my neck, uh, turning to left and right. And so I was just treating it with heat. I think I was having a few massages and it's sort of, I've seen a chiropractor a few times, which I wouldn't really recommend anybody to go to, especially if they have anything wrong with their neck. Looking back, I think this continued for about 10 years, really, until I finally had a sort of an x-ray on my neck where they could see the arthritic changes the x-ray and they actually spotted that my neck had actually lost the natural curve. It was actually 10 years of sort of going backwards and forwards to various doctors and therapists. 
I started in my 30s. I can actually remember the day that my neck sort of totally locked up and gave me the pain. I was working. I was fit in a kitchen in the house, and I'd been holding up the cabinets for my friend while he was actually fitting them. And the next day, I woke up, and I could feel my, my neck was getting a little stiff as the day was going on. And this was at a stage where the pain started to really increase, and I couldn't sort of ignore it. So yeah, I jumped in the bath, thinking, right, I'll put some heat on the back of my neck and see if this actually sort of loosens it. But I ended up, I couldn't actually lift myself out of the bath, and I was stuck there. In the end, we had to go and get my get my mother and my grandmother to get me out of the bath. Um, yeah, so being there in my 30s, when my grandmother and my mother getting me out of the bath, I thought, oh, crikey, here goes. But the pain was uh, really, really bad, really bad. And by the time I got to the hospital and the car journey, I think I went in there, seen the, the nurse, and yet again, they said it was, a, it was a muscular issue, and they gave me some painkillers and that was it go back rest and you know go and see a doctor if there was no x-rays done there was no mris done my reflexes were normal it was just the the pain really how worrying that you were getting all these sort of major symptoms and and it was all being put down to to sort of muscular so when it actually came to the diagnosis um what different tests were you given sort of neurological tests and and various things like that what was done to to sort of secure this diagnosis i started having twitching in my arm muscle spasms in my left arm so i went back to the doctors my job was driving a forklift daily and when I was unloading the lorries at the time because I was looking up in the air I found that my symptoms were getting worse because my neck was sort of elevated up. I can remember the guy in the CMA team telling me I know this is going to be sort of uncomfortable but we've got to do this and he, he lifted my head up and he held me in that position and I can remember that I was starting to feel dizzy uh, the room started spinning, and so I said, right, quick, I, I think I'm going I'm to pass out sort of thing. He sort of dropped the bombshell in, looking at my MRI, do I want surgery? And I was thinking, crikey, so it's that serious that I need surgery, and, and it wasn't a question I, that I could sort of answer immediately. So I did go down the sort of physiotherapy path, but looking back, I know what I know now, Anybody with myelopathy is the quicker that they have the diagnosis, you know, the better outcomes they they have when um, they have surgery. Absolutely. And it must have been such a shock for you suddenly, you know, having been told it was a muscular issue to get into the state of needing surgery. I've had these issues for years and years and I was walking around and by actually doing the work that I was doing and doing, you know, the training and uh, going to the gym and so on, I was just making the condition worse. It's a slow motion spinal injury, yeah? So if you knew you had a spinal injury, you would have to take dramatic sort of lifestyle changes to protect your neck, yeah? So you mentioned it, um, but how important do you, do you think the MRI was and the imaging in general in getting your diagnosis? The x-ray picked up on the osteophytes and uh, the condition of my neck because it lost the natural curve in my neck. But the MRI is the one that shows 
that there is some spinal cord compression. And until you have the MRI, you could be walking around with this condition and not knowing about it. And if you go into a chiropractor and he's manipulating your neck without imaging, you know, it's, it's, it's so dangerous. So, Ewan, just sort of digging down a little bit deeper into exactly sort of the tests and you went through um, to get your diagnosis and the specialists you saw, um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about any tests that you, you were having, for example, electrophysiology um, and imaging uh, that were involved in sort of really giving you that diagnosis of DCM. The only test they had was the the MRI that actually came up with uh, pressure on the on the spinal cord. My arms started having muscular spasms and so on that I knew it was something to do with you know the neck and it was a neurological condition rather than a muscular condition. The problem you have is when you do have an appointment with a doctor or a specialist you've got about a, a 10 minute window yeah and you go in there and there's a limited amount of information that they actually give you you've got so much going on in your mind thinking right what's actually happening here you get totally lost with the questions that you need to sort of ask them to get the answers a lot of the time you go into an appointment and you're trying to take all this information in. There's something wrong with your, your spinal cord. You trap some nerves and so on. It must make you feel sort of really scared and sort of lonely in a way. Yeah, and there's, and there's no one to talk to about it. And back in 2015, if you did a Google search, you'd come up with canomelopathy, and that was it. I think you need to go to the root of the issue, which is probably your first protocol is going to be your GP. Yeah, so if your GP hasn't got the right information about myelopathy, you're going to sort of travel down the wrong paths like I did. My, my symptoms are getting worse. My dizziness was getting worse. Uh, my muscle spasms were getting worse. And one day I, I asked the doctor for the secretary's number for the surgeon that he'd um, written to regarding my condition. And found out that the surgeon wasn't wasn't a specialist in the cervical spine area. So then I had to go on a waiting list for another surgeon. So it's like any condition that you have, the quicker you can have the diagnosis done, the quicker you can have the treatment done, and you know, the better can, you're gonna have when you have surgery. The thing with surgery for myelopathy is it's not a cure. It's to slow down the progression of the condition. Yeah, definitely it's getting the information out there to the GPs. And it's not just a UK sort of problem as well. It's a problem that is worldwide because we hear the same old story in the support group daily. If you're having to wait each time, you know, to be transferred to an expert in this field or, or whatever, then it's just further delays, isn't it? In the end, I phoned up the surgeon secretary and explained to her that my symptoms were getting worse and I would take a cancellation. And if the cancellation did come up, I'd be able to you know, make it in 20 minutes. I was only 20 minutes away from the hospital. And that shaved about three months off my waiting list. So the importance of actually having early diagnosis, you know, it's, it, it's an absolute game changer.
I was wondering what your recommendations would be for answering this particular priority. Get the information to to the doctors, you know, get awareness out there, which is number one on the priority list. There's people out there who unfortunately have become disabled because of a length of time that has been spent from the doctors to surgery. At the moment, I think surgery is the only treatment that we have myopathy, unfortunately. Also, it's quite off-putting as well. It is a benefit. You can come through the other side and you've got, now you've got the support that people need as well, but it's definitely a marathon. I think with the right information and the mindset that we can push through and we can do together. I was speaking to someone else the other day who had myopathy, and they were saying, you know what, it's so reassuring to speak to somebody who has the condition and who can sort of relate with you. Not everybody has the same symptoms. You think it's all in your head at one point until you speak to somebody. Um, when you speak to somebody, it's, it's like therapy, really. You know, you can go, oh, crikey, yeah, I wasn't going mad. Yeah, you know, the twitches in my face, the twitches in my neck. You know, they can relate to it because if you're doing a Google search, there's only so much information that they can actually put out there. I think it's really shocking, Ben, that Ewan waited 10 years to get his proper diagnosis for DCM. I'm just thinking of all the additional damage that um, has potentially occurred to his neck in that time. Do you think this is a really widespread problem? Yeah, I mean, I think it it certainly is an experience that we hear more and more uh, from from people living with the disease and and their heart wrenching stories. You know, for Ewan, someone in his thirties, fit, independent, working father, and then progressively his life is turned upside down with without an explanation for so many years. Um, and I think the sorts of experiences that that we hear in all of these different stories is the fact that they're seeing multiple different professionals, no one's quite sure of the pathway, the kind of test to arrange, where to go next. And that really came out with with Ewan's experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, as he mentioned, a turning point for him was when he had his x-ray and that picked up these osteophytes in his neck. Yeah, that was quite interesting to hear, actually, because Ewan puts a lot of emphasis on that cervical spine x-ray being a turning point in his diagnostic pathway. And actually, we hear exactly the same message from Paige Howard when she discusses the role of assessment and monitoring in in episode four. So I think as someone very interested in myelopathy, when I hear something at least twice, you've you've got to re-examine that as whether that is something potentially of value. But, you know, today we really think that the cervical spine x-ray doesn't have a great role in picking up myelopathy. And what we're really talking about is getting access to MRI scans, which can really show you the neural structures and, and how they're being compressed. But even the MRI scan on its own is not fully specific. You know, we know that one in five people will have evidence of spinal cord compression on an MRI and not necessarily have myelopathy. So it's all, it's all you know, recognizing it's very difficult to have a perfect test for, for how we pick up myelopathy. And there needs to be some coordination of lots of different parts of, I guess, of a medical story to try and get things put together. And these are some of the difficulties and challenges that I discussed with Dr. James Harrop, Professor of Neurological and Orthopaedic Surgery at the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, as we talked about how people diagnose and pick up myelopathy today. 
So we're going to be talking through a little bit about the importance of establishing diagnostic criteria, which is one of the research priorities set by the AO Spine Recode DCM project. And I wanted to start by asking you, Jim, something you put to me at the very beginning when I was pitching this project, and that was, you know, do we actually have a definition for myelopathy? And, and what, what did you mean by that? It's interesting. Medicine is very gray, meaning that there's not a lot of concrete definitions. To make it more obtuse, if we go all the way back and we look at the definition of myelopathy and you look at our roots, interestingly, it means a disorder of the bone marrow. So you can see the word we use to describe a clinical syndrome doesn't even really pertain to the symptom. So I, I think as this project is doing, we're trying to start at the basics, understand what exactly are the clinical symptoms, and we're doing better than we do in a lot of diseases because we've included the patients in and tried to get their perspective. Lots of the, the features that we do rely on perhaps are a little bit subjective. And you know maybe there is in global practice a sort of over-reliance on the MRI, which at least is to a degree thought to be a bit more objective. I think humans and particularly surgeons really want to help their patients. And one of the greatest advances in neurosciences in the last 30 years has been the MRI. And you have to remember, if you go back 100 years ago, we as clinicians used to think that Hoffman signs and Babinski signs, which are signs of significant spinal cord compression, were the natural history of humans. MRI completely opened our eyes. And like all things, when you look at the innovation curve, we got very excited about it and thought this was the answer. And now, as time's gone on, we've questioned, well, is the MRI everything in the myelopathy? And I think the answer is no. And that's why we have to individualize and look at every single patient. To key on that, and I sort of said it earlier, 10% of patients actually have cervical stenosis, but don't have myelopathy. So what's your approach today in clinic to making a diagnosis of, of cervical myelopathy? So the way I approach a patient is, is every patient's an individual. This is sort of the key about being a physician is you have to look at patients and what their goals are. A, diagnosing someone with a myelopathy doesn't mean someone needs an operation. I think that's the first part that I think we as surgeons need to understand. The second thing is I think talking to the patient probably is the single best way to understand if they have a myelopathy. And by that, I usually ask some simple questions like how's their walking? How's their fine motor control? You can also pick up clues by just looking at the patient. Once you talk to them and you establish that, yes, something is going on in their life, which is impeding their quality of life, such as fine motor control loss, the next step is to examine them. And I always do this before I look at the MRI study, because I'm a believer in you should understand your patient and use the MRI as a tool to finalize a diagnosis rather than the MRI is the diagnosis. And so once you examine them, you look for what we call long track signs, which are classically hyperreflexia, inability to tandem gait, I think is probably the most sensitive test on patients. And probably the least sensitive test is weakness. Usually by the time you have weakness, you're pretty advanced in terms of myelopathy. The tandem gait test is a very simple test. It takes about five seconds to do, and it's very easy to do anywhere. Most of my patients refer to it as the drunk driving test or balance beam test. You need to get a, a room with a straight line on it, 
and only need about five to 10 feet and have the patient walk on the line. And the key is have them do it from toe to heel and touch each one. Now, the more advanced patients will try to cheat and they'll try to walk very quickly, which makes it easier. So that's a key. Try to have them walk at a normal pace. And it's a positive test or the patient has problems if they can't do that. And typically what they do is they fall to the side. I think the, the other things that we, we ask patients all the time, if you're looking for questions that are very common, classically is fine motor control issues. Handwriting changes is very common, people will say. Number two is women will stop wearing jewelry or earrings. They'll, they'll change the clip on earrings because they can't put their earrings on. They'll stop putting necklaces on with clasps. A lot of people, believe it or not, leave the lights on at night because they can't feel their feet enough to go to the bathroom when they have to get up. That's another sign I've picked up over the years. How do you ask those questions? Do you just, uh, do you just uh, examine your, your uh, female patient's jewelry very closely? Or? You know, it's funny. I'm a big believer of uh, observation. And so when someone who walks in my room or I walk in the room, I always just look at them. And you can tell right off the bat because the women will have they won't have any jewelry on. And most of the patients you got to remember are 60 to 80 years old. And it's somewhat unusual for a woman not to have any jewelry. And so then you ask them, you say, when did you stop wearing jewelry? And they look at you like you're you know, a spy and you've been invading their life. And they're like, how'd you know I stopped wearing jewelry? Um, or the other thing you'll notice is, and it's kind of amazing over the years, they, they buy shirts with huge buttons on it because they can't put the buttons, the smaller buttons together. And so they change their wardrobe. Another clue that I usually ask people is if I walk in the room and they have a, a cane or something with them, because it's very atypical to have a cane. I mean, you, you shouldn't have a cane unless you have a balance or a gait dysfunction. And then the last part is looking at the MRI. And finally, with all our patients, we get x-rays to understand once we have a diagnosis of myelopathy, to decide how to surgically approach them. And so listening to those sort of three transition points, and I mean, perhaps that's sort of where a diagnostic criteria may lie, that combination of symptoms, examination findings, and then image findings. I totally agree. I think one of the problems in the world is we've become so technology dependent. We Step one and step two, meaning talking to your patient, understanding what's going on with them, because don't forget, a lot of things can cause people to have fine motor control problems. For example, carpal tunnel, diabetes can have people have loss of sensation in their hands. Very common features with people with myelopathy, they'll, they'll explain their hands feel very rubbery or they lost the tactile sensation in their hands. If we think about why we need to form diagnostic criteria, I mean, how do you think that could help spinal surgeons like yourself around the world? Well, I think one of the, the, the greatest ways it's going to help us is we still don't understand what is the right approach to the problem. We sort of lump myelopathy in a big group of patients. We know that many different diseases causes people to have a myelopathy. For example, you can have a spinal cord injury from what we call a central cord injury where you hit your head and have a myelopathy. And we see several patients a year with that as opposed to someone who has a slow onset gradual uh, worsening due to canal stenosis from something we call OPLL. Presently, we sort of put all the patients in the same barrel and we try to understand them and we do studies on them. I think by finding up our diagnostic criteria, we can start taking this heterogeneity group and start making smaller groups 
And maybe we need to approach different diseases or different subsets of myelopathies different ways. That's obviously critical and points perhaps very much to the, to the spinal surgeon. But, but do you think established criteria could, could go beyond that and help perhaps other physicians who are obviously crucial in, in trying to detect this disease as early as possible? Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll zoom out. Uh, I'm sorry, looking at the myopic surgeon view uh, and provided my answers for that. But then again, is once we have definitions and we have concrete definitions, we can then aim to the general population, not only surgeons, but family doctors, clinicians, and hopefully we can even take this broadly to patients' point of view. You know, if you look at our colleagues with stroke, I think they've done a fantastic job and sort of these are the early warning signs of stroke. If we could do that with myelopathy and get people to get diagnosed earlier and educated, not necessarily operated on, educated, we might be able to change the course and, and pattern of this disease. How would you approach forming diagnostic criteria? I think exactly how we did it uh, or, or are doing it. I think the Recode Project is fantastic. You know, the problem with life is everyone's biased and everyone has sort of their own tunnel vision. We brought a group of people in and had a bunch of different perspectives on a problem because I don't know what it's like to be a myelopathic patient. And having inputs and views from all these different groups has really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I didn't consider before. Most people I see have a myelopathy that are severely symptomatic, have had it for several years when you really go down and you drive into it. And you got to remember, humans are unbelievable creatures. We will adjust and adapt to our environment or make our environment adapt to us. There's this perception, which I think is completely wrong, that as we get older, we get weaker and have walking problems. People should not get weak as they get old and should not have walking problems. That should be viewed as atypical rather than this perception in society now that, oh, it's normal to get old and not be able to walk. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. But obviously, a lot of the gait analysis that we do in practice is just a question of watching. Do you think some of the objectivity that perhaps is brought by these new techniques, which provide you know quantitative measures in this gate labs by whatever means, are they they going to be an additional benefit of a, a new direction for this field? Absolutely. So it's interesting that the whole field of machine learning is all about taking a lot of data and looking at it and recognizing patterns that we as humans don't appreciate. And so, you know, pattern recognition is unbelievable. Uh, if you've ever seen a radiologist read a film, it's very interesting because what they do is they look at the film, but they have so much background data in their head. They look at it, they see the whole film, but they don't even realize they see it because in the periphery, they're looking for patterns and, and trends. And if they see something awkward, that's how you go to that other area and, and diagnose it. That's That's exactly what an expert is. So when I watch someone who's myelopathic or someone with a, comes in to see me, I watch them walk. And myelopathic people have a very specific gait as opposed to, you know, there are multiple different types of gait. Uh, people with hydrocephalus have what they call a magnetic type of gait where their feet stick. Parkinson's patients have a shuffly gait. And this is, this is just very general things that I've picked up over the years. But you can imagine if you have a computer that's watching angles and very precisely watching people, they most likely will be able to pick up a myelopathy 
way earlier than a human eye. So I thought that interview was really interesting to listen to, especially if you contrast sort of the perspectives of a medical professional with Ewan's experience as someone living with myelopathy. What were the key themes for you, Ben? I think it's interesting that both stories, you hear similar inconsistencies. You know, even from a spinal specialist, there is not a a, a single pathway to getting a diagnosis. And, and, and if you think that's in the hands of a, of a specialist, you know, how do we translate in the, into the hands of non-specialists, for example, in, in myelopathy? And it clearly fundamentally impacts on clinical care. That's why it's a research priority. Um, and, and we've certainly got to try and address this in order to, to get the best out of surgery. Yes, and I think that it appears um, from this discussion and, that, and others that um, the tests really play a significant role in the diagnosis. I'm going to talk about myself here as a layperson, but and I think here, you know, I sort of imagine that with something like myelopathy, someone would have an MRI and then bam, there's the diagnosis. But it seems that that's not really the case. That's absolutely right. You know, this is not like conditions, for example, such as diabetes, where, you know, a single blood test can give you an answer you know, yes or no. This is something where lots of different pieces of the jigsaw have to be brought together. And I think that is certainly one of the key drivers for why the disease is difficult to diagnose, diagnose at the right time. And it really speaks to many of the different priorities that have emerged in this process. You know, for example, the need to develop new clinical assessments, priority number four, or the need to develop new imaging techniques, uh, priority number nine. Um, But I think it's difficult to envisage how we will get to having a perfect test. I think certainly for the short term, we're really going to have to rely on trying to find a way of putting lots of different types of information together better. Um, And that's realistically how we're going to arrive at an effective diagnostic framework. And so how are we going to develop this? Well, that is a good question and something I put to our next guest, Dr. Brian Kwan, who is the Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery at the University of British Columbia and also, of course, the Chair of the AO Spine Spinal Cord Injury Knowledge Forum. But I started by asking him, why do you think diagnostic criteria are relevant in DCM and how could they help? Well, I think that uh, diagnostic criteria are important at, at probably a few different levels. At one level, we clearly have an, an awareness and detection issue at the front end where, you know, I've heard from stakeholders, we've heard from patients of some of the challenges that they went through before they were even diagnosed as having degenerative cervical myelopathy. So at one level, if there were very clear diagnostic criteria, then applied at the frontline level for clinicians that are managing, you know, diverse groups of patients to have really well laid out diagnostic criteria, I think would really help the efforts of detecting individuals at a much earlier time frame than, uh, than what I think our stakeholders told us during the, uh, the RECODE DCM project. So I think that that's one level in which diagnostic criteria could really help. The second, of course, is in, in surgical diagnosis and decision-making, where we understand that DCM can present in a classic prototypical manner, and and that's terrific when that happens, but we also know that clearly there are 
challenges that arise and then not everybody fits a cookie cutter presentation of DCM. And then to have diagnostic criteria, um, I think would certainly help in the, uh, in the decision-making and then, and the sorts of investigations that individuals like, you know, myself that, that see people on a, for a surgical opinion would pursue. And then of course, finally, the third level is that is around research. And I think that one of the things that the RICO DCM process has really, you know, illuminated is the fact that from a research standpoint, like we all actually need to be sort of talking about the same entity. And if the entity itself doesn't have, you know, diagnostic criteria, then this creates, you know, uh, a lot of confusion uh, within the literature. So I think at, at this level, having diagnostic criteria would really help to define the patient populations that are actually being studied and talked about in the literature. So I think that it's really uh, at three different levels that diagnostic criteria could certainly be very meaningful. How do you think one could approach you know, producing those diagnostic criteria? Well, I think that uh, to some extent, I think that this will require a very collaborative approach that acknowledges the the need for very broad data collection and then the the very mundane task of following people through to really establish what are the uh, the valid criteria to be using. Because in some respects, like you never really necessarily know, and to some extent, uh, you know, some of the validation of, you know, what you think are criteria may not actually be able to be accomplished until you actually have followed patients over a long period of time. In many cases, potentially not until after they even have their surgery or some sort of treatment or intervention for their, their myelopathy. So I think that this, like the process of establishing what the natural history is, this requires a uh, commitment to data collection, and then the mundane process of just following people over time to try to validate the things that we think are criteria. Mundane, but obviously uh, extremely valuable potentially. And, and perhaps then you hint that these sorts of questions or some of these questions could overlap in terms of how they're approached uh, on a research level. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it really highlights the fact that many people think, well, like if you really want to have top-notch scientific evidence, you have to do a prospective randomized trial. But I think that, you know, that overlooks the importance of really committing to, you know, a high quality prospective observational evaluation of things like, you know, the natural history, things like diagnostic elements and criteria that require just really careful, methodical evaluation over many years to, uh, to validate and establish as, as true criteria. In other areas and other diseases, there's been a lot of work around establishing sort of biomarkers that can help, you know, enhance what what symptoms can offer in terms of a, of a diagnostic criteria. And and biomarkers is obviously something of a, a of your expertise, although in a traumatic spinal cord injury setting. Do you, do you think anything like that could have value in in, in myelopathy? Oh, absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, in myelopathy, the challenge remains that we're often defining it based on things that are quite subjective, right? We're defining it based on, you know, how patients describe the dexterity in their hands, for example, and how a clinician might evaluate the uh, their reflexes as either being brisk or a little bit brisk or not brisk, uh, etc. So, 
I think something that would obviously help the field would be to establish objective markers of this condition. And whether those be biological in the form of neurochemical elements in blood or CSF, or imaging biomarkers in the form of advanced MRI, or electrophysiological biomarkers uh, obtained through uh, neurophysiological testing. I think any or all of these could really add to uh, the issue of trying to establish objective measures that first could be diagnostic, but then eventually could potentially be also ways to monitor treatment effect. I think the great challenge in myelopathy is, broadly speaking, the signal-to-noise ratio. You know, in traumatic spinal cord injury, there's something very dramatic that has happened to the spinal cord. And here in cervical myelopathy, it's obviously a much more indolent process. So I think that those signals are probably there. And it's really a matter of teasing out the signal-to-noise ratio, particularly for serum markers, where you're looking for hints and clues about what's happening in the central nervous system within the milieu of biology uh, that is happening in the, the individual when you look at their blood. I think absolutely there's a future for these uh, types of objective markers. Again, it requires you know some upfront study and then really uh, the commitment to, over a long period of time, establish cohorts to validate things that we view as being promising. So another nice interview, and I think what really came across from Brian's interview is how much of an impact this could all have on clinical care. Yeah, I mean, I think it's becoming more and more clear that timing treatment correctly is is fundamental to maximising its benefit. And if we could do this better each time, then we certainly would reduce the disability and improve the outcomes. But treatment's always going to be too late and difficult if people like you can't reach specialist clinics in a timely manner. And I think that is why addressing this is such such a key priority for all of us, in, including spinal surgeons. Yeah, and he was also very clear in his interview that a collaborative effort is needed. Nothing massively new. Um, it's all already there. It just needs to be brought together and made sort of more effective, more efficient. And like he says, it's not particularly exciting, rather mon- mundane, um, but so important that we get this right for the future. I think we can certainly apply what we know today better, but there still are some unknowns. I I like this story about the American statistician Abraham Wald, who was asked during the Second World War to analyse the aircraft damage on returning US fighter jets to try and understand where better to to armour them. Um, But he pointed out that what he wanted to really look at was the the planes that weren't returning, because they were the ones obviously being shot down. And I think, you know, we have this issue at DCM today, our perspectives on the diagnostic pathway are informed by what we do today, those who get a diagnosis. And it's not yet clear if that approach is going to be something that can serve all of those groups. You know, how do we reach the people who aren't getting a diagnosis? So I think what Brian also alludes to there is that the solutions here are going to overlap with that other research priority, the natural history. And what are the features of DCM at the beginning? And I think better understanding that, incorporating that into diagnostic algorithms and frameworks is going to be fundamental to getting solutions across the board. So it just remains to say thank you very much to Ewan Sadler, Dr. James Harrop and Dr. Brian Kwan for joining us today. 
This podcast was researched by Elizabeth Roberts and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV. There's lots of information to be found at www.aospine.org forward slash recode. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with the next item, the number four research priority from AOSpine Recode DCM, that is assessment and monitoring. Don't miss it. So in order not to miss it, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app? But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.